Hi, welcome to the Holton Baptist Church podcast. We are really glad that you have joined us and we pray that the message you're about to hear will really bless you, encourage you and help you to encounter God afresh for yourself. Great to have you with us. Enjoy. Have we got any uh, sports fans here this morning? A handful, one or two, three or four, maybe five or six. Okay, well, for you, this, this might not land. For the rest of you, you're with me. Okay, so I've been doing something this week that in 40 years of life, I pretty much have never done. I've been learning a little bit about sport. It's been fascinating, honestly. Um, I've been learning a little bit about sport, and I've been doing that uh, in order to sort of do this sermon introduction. And I stumbled across so many stories I could have told, but the one that, that interested me the most was the story of a minor league baseball player. I'd, I've completely forgotten the guy's name or what team he played for. I mean, it doesn't matter because most of us wouldn't know anyway. This minor league baseball player had an entire career where he swung the bat precisely no times, where he was in uh, in, on the field, I don't know what they call it, on base, in the field, out, I don't know, uh, where he was there precisely no times. In fact, he had a 15-year career where all he did was sit on the bench. The whole time, he never got to play once. He made millions of dollars sitting on the bench. And I thought to myself, I'm in the wrong job. Because honestly, I could, I could not swing a baseball bat and not catch a baseball and not run around the, whatever they call it, the quadrangle or whatever it is, the bases. I could do that just as well. In fact, I'd be really good at that. Sitting around and being paid millions of dollars for doing nothing for 15 years. Sign me up. That sounds brilliant, doesn't it? Now, that story really appeals to me. It really attracted me, firstly, because it's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And I wonder what this guy was thinking. I wonder what was going through his mind, whether he was thinking to himself, I'll get called up next week. I'll get called up to play next week. Next game, that's my game. Next game is my game. And I wonder at what point he sort of thought, this isn't going to happen for me, is it? Whether for 15 years he spent his time being frustrated, or after a few years he thought, you know what? I have got it made. I've got it made. I don't have to do anything. And they're just paying me to sit around and endorse things. I'm never actually stepping out there. And the thing is that while baseball is not in any way like Christian faith, sometimes we are a little bit like that baseball player. We never step up. We sit on the benches, whether through fear or whether through design or whether through inactivity maybe we think we've got it made it's a bit cushy isn't it it's a bit okay we can just turn up and sit around and we we don't have to do anything we reap all the rewards now we're continuing this morning with our series looking at Micah and looking at this passage from Micah chapter 6 it's Micah chapter 6 it's verse 8 that we're in, and we've seen the words, they've come up already in that beautiful high production video uh, that you've just watched. What does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, we're doing these, as I said last week, in a slightly different order, and it will become very clear why, I hope, next week, and slightly clearer this week. So there's a, there was lack of clarity last week, a bit more clarity this week and complete clarity next week because I've got to keep you coming back somehow. 
It's like a TV show with a cliffhanger each week. So previously on, keeping that, previously in our Love Walk Do series, last week we thought about what it meant to love mercy. We thought about the call to be merciful because we have received mercy from God. And that all of us live in this state of having received God's mercy. And so all of us should try and live in the state of being merciful towards others. And yes, it's difficult and it's hard and we all slip up from time to time. And there are times in our lives when we are all going to be unmerciful. And in those times, all we can do is repent, and all we can do is trust that God's grace and God's love is sufficient enough to cover our failings. Because at the end of the day, none of us, none of us is perfect. None of us gets this right all the time. This week, we're moving on to the second of our uh, order of these things, which is to walk humbly with your God. So just to kind of set the scene a bit, you'll remember that Micah is writing to the divided kingdom. He's one of the prophets that's writing at a time where the people of God have split themselves up. They've split themselves up because they've had two people who've claimed divine right to be the king. So you've got the northern kingdom, you've got the southern kingdom. If anybody can remember the names of the kings, shout them out. Nope, neither can I, so that's all right. Um, I have got them written down. I didn't write them on my sermon this week. It's, it's uh, I want to say Rehoboam and Jeroboam, but I could be, could be completely wrong. It's in there. You'll find it in 2 Kings, I think, chapter 12. The whole point is that because of their arrogance, because they think they know better than God, the people have divided themselves. And they've also turned away from God. And Micah's uh, prophecies, which are are over this, it's a very short book, but it's a very powerful bit of writing uh, that Micah gives. Micah's prophecies are basically saying, you guys have got to turn back to God. This is what you're doing, and it's not right. This is what God is calling you to. But there's a beautiful thing in Micah, and this is is what we're going to see a a bit more of next week. But I just want to tell you, do you know the structure of Micah is amazing? He does these... Uh, these these massive, uh, absolutely powerful, mighty takedowns of Israel. He he says, this is God's judgment on you. This is where you have messed up. This is everything you are doing wrong. And then he follows that with a message of profound hope. And he says, although, although you are living in a way that is against the way you should be living... God still is going to forgive you if you turn back to him. So it's this call to repentance and then this promise of hope. And he doesn't just do that once. He actually does it three times. Same pattern. A call to repentance, a pointing out, a prophetic revelation of where God's people have messed up. And then the promise of hope. And this is what God does for us as well, isn't it? God reveals to us where we've gone wrong, but then promises his grace and his hope and his mercy. So Micah, and do read Micah, by the way, it will take you less than half an hour to read the whole of Micah. Uh, So go and read Micah, and and you'll see this pattern. And this particular bit of Micah, so Micah has set up this scene as a court scene. Now, we were going to have a dramatic reading this morning, and I was going to get a judge's wig and everything, and bring bring a gavel and act out this court scene, but you might get that next week. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. So Micah is calling the people at this point in this court scene. God has laid out his charge against the people. This is where you have messed up. And then God says this. This is what I require of you. To do justice. 
to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So what does it mean to walk humbly? Well, the first thing I want to say is that our faith, if we're going to walk humbly, we need to have an active faith. Walking is an active thing. We walk with God. As Meg has reminded us earlier, walking requires actually doing something. You can't just sit around and talk about it and think that is going to achieve the goal. You can't just say, well, I'd like to go for a walk and think, well, brilliant, I've done my walk then for today. You actually have to do it. Many of you will know my apathy towards exercise in general. In fact, it's a bit of a running joke that uh, I, I really don't enjoy any form of exercise. And I actually really don't like walking that much either. In fact, when I interviewed here, I was asked, uh, do you like walking? And, and I said, no, no, I don't. And somebody said, oh, we'll have to fix that. And I'm like, why? Why do you have to fix I don't like walking. I'm not going to make you listen to German opera if you don't like that. I don't like walking. But the thing is, I like the idea of walking. You know, I love the idea of walking, getting out into nature, spending time in God's creation. I love the idea of walking. And I know the benefits of walking. Fresh air is good for you. Exercise is good for you. It's good for your spirit as well as for your body. But when it comes to the actual reality, I'm far less keen. And there are times in our lives when our faith can be a bit like that. We like the idea of following Jesus. We know the benefits of following Jesus. But when it comes to the reality of following him, we're far less keen. And that's where we struggle. That's where we find ourselves making excuses. That's where we put ourselves on the bench and never step up to the plate. But the call to follow Jesus is to do just that, to follow him, to get up from where we are and to go and to walk with him, to leave behind what was and to begin again. Matthew, uh, Matthew recounts this in his uh, account of Jesus calling the first disciples. And he writes this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. This is how Jesus invites us as well. He calls to us in the middle of what we're doing, in the middle of our daily lives, in the middle of our daily routines, while we're doing our jobs, while we're with our families, while we're earning a living, while we're doing things. And we're, we're getting on probably quite nicely. And Jesus interrupts our daily lives. And he says, come and follow me. Lay down what you're doing. Put an end to your former way of living and follow me. And in fact, Jesus makes this clear throughout his ministry, and perhaps nowhere more so than in Matthew 19. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what, must I, uh, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replies? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. I love this bit. This is the man going, right, what's the bare minimum 
I have to do? What's the absolute bare minimum I have to do? Which ones? He inquires. And Jesus replies, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your mother and father and love your neighbor as yourself. These are a selection of the Ten Commandments, but they are basically encompassing the commands of God. All these I've kept, the young man says. What do I still lack? It's like, I've done this. I've done this, Lord. I'm doing it. I'm not being adulterous. I'm not killing anybody. I'm not lying. And I'm honoring my mother and father. What do I lack? And Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. The man has already asked Jesus, what's the bare minimum I've got to do? What's the the least amount I need to do in order to be able to call myself a disciple, to get the benefits? This is like me saying, what's the least amount of walking I've got to do to get the benefits? And Jesus is saying, it's not about that. It's not about what's the least you can do. It's about giving up everything. And if you're not prepared to give up everything to follow me, then you have no place with me. This is what he says to his disciples. Unless you are prepared to leave your mother and father, you have no place with me. It's hard words. And Jesus isn't, I don't think, asking us to actually abandon our families. He's asking, are we prepared to give him everything? Because the call to follow Christ is a call to genuinely and actually live out the reality of the new life he gives us. So here's the thing. Christianity is not a spectator sport but we have become really adept at making it one. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We have got really good at turning it into one. The church, and and especially, I'm sad to say, the church in the West, has become really accomplished, has become really proficient at making the church into an amazing spectacle. And somewhere along the way, we've lost the fundamental truth that our faith, Our worship is not a performance that we engage in once or twice a week. It's not a club we attend from time to time. It's not something we passively observe because as long as we show our faces, as long as we do the bare minimum, we're doing what we need to. Christianity is not an invitation to passive inertia, but a call to active participation. We are drawn into the work of God in creation. We're called out of the way of living in the world and into lives where we share with God the building of his kingdom. As we become co-heirs and co-inheritors with Christ, we take on responsibility. And that responsibility is for getting stuck in. It's for getting our hands dirty, for getting our feet dusty. We enter into the business of sharing with our sisters and our brothers in the joys and the delights and the challenges and trials of taking our place in God's kingdom-building initiative. Now, if you cast your minds back to the beginning of the year, we did a whole series about Nehemiah, and we were reminded of the importance of everybody playing their part. Those walls would not have been rebuilt unless there were people willing to get their hands dirty, willing to get stuck in, willing to do the business. Everybody used their gifts, and you'll remember from our series on Gifted that we talked about how the gifts of God are for the building of God's kingdom. Everybody doing their part, playing their part. And we can't do that if we're sat on the sidelines. We can't do that if we bench ourselves or watch from a distance. 
We're called to have a faith that is lived out. A faith that is actively participant. One of my favorite, I say this, it's at least in the top 66 books of the Bible, is the book of James. That's one for Bible nerd fans there. Uh, is the book of James. I love James. When I, whenever I think I'm getting this right, Whenever I think, you know what, whoo, yeah, I'm being a super Christian at the minute. I read James, so I'm reading it once a week at the minute, really. I read James because James calls me to account. James reminds me of all the ways I'm messing up. James reminds me that although I might be doing the bare minimum, there is still more I could be doing. James writes passionately about this, and in James 1, he writes this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. You read that again. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So James is saying this, don't just listen, but act on what you've heard. Don't just listen, but go and do. Don't just read scripture and say, well, that all sounds like a jolly good idea. If only more people did these things in scripture and then close your Bible and forget about it and go off and live however you want. Our faith should, it must be an active thing. I'm going to ask you a question. How questionable is your life? How questionable is your life? Seriously, how questionable is your life? Because I want to suggest that as people who follow Jesus, our lives should be questionable. We should be living differently to the non-believers. We should be living differently to the way of the world. We should be standing against the things that are not of God. We should be behaving differently, thinking differently, speaking differently. And if we're doing it right, that's going to make people ask questions. Our lives are going to become questionable lives. Why is this person the way they are? Why do they speak so gently with love? Why don't they engage in gossip and malicious talk? Why do they think more of other people than of themselves? Why, why, why? It's by this, our witness, the way we live as much as what we say about God and Jesus and faith, that people will come to know Christ for themselves. We are called to tell people about Jesus, but more importantly, we are called to show people Jesus in the way we live. Are we living those lives that invite questions. Why are you different? Why are you different? The wonderful Eugene Peterson writes in a book that I highly commend to all of you called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And he writes these words. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. For some, it is a weekly jaunt to church For others, occasional visits to special services. Some, with a bent for religious entertainment and sacred diversion, plan their lives around special events like retreats, rallies, and conferences. We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and so somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. There is a great market for religious experience in our world. 
There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. These are words that are really challenging, written in Eugene's wonderfully pastoral style. But he's calling us to recognize that if all we're seeking is experience, the weekly service, the prayer meeting, the discipleship uh, discipleship group gathering, if all we are after is sensation, the worship songs being anointed with oil and prayer, the absolution that's found in confession and the fellowship of communion, then we're not walking with God. We're attending a performance. At best, we become passengers, comfortably sat in the back seat while we let others do the hard work, knowing that we're going to end up in the same destination. But that's not what God commands us to do. Because throughout Scripture, God doesn't say, neglect my commands. He doesn't say, ignore my laws. He doesn't say, disregard my directions. He doesn't say, take a step back and just let things happen around you. All of God's commands to us are active ones. They're all go and do. Go and do this. Live like this. Behave like this. Speak like this. Think like this. And all of his uh, prohibitions are things not to do. Don't speak like this. Don't behave like this. Don't go and do that. They're all active and they require our active engagement. The thing is that if we turn faith into just another social activity. If if church is just something you come to on a Sunday because you've got nothing better to do, or as was said in our prayer meeting this morning, because it's a nice walk out. If church is nothing more, if faith is nothing more than just something else you do in a busy social calendar, then God has something to say to us. And he pulls no punches. A few decades before Micah, the prophet Amos wrote about this, and he writes these words. I hate... I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never failing stream. Through Amos, God tells us that he hates our worship if it's not backed up by our living. Just take a moment and think about that. We can sing all the songs we want. We can pray all the prayers we want. We can do good things. We can give money to places. But if it's not backed up by our living, it doesn't matter what we bring here to God. It doesn't matter how good our worship is. It doesn't matter how brilliantly the music group played, and they have played brilliantly this morning. And it doesn't matter how good our prayers are. If we don't live the way that God calls us to do, it's nothing to him. In fact, he detests it. He despises it. Difficult stuff to hear, yes? Challenging things to know. If our religious gatherings are not matched by our active participation, you know what, we may as well not bother. We may as well just all have a lie-in on a Sunday morning, have breakfast in bed, have a nice fry-up. And maybe that sounds appealing to you. But the call to follow Christ is a call to walk, to get up and participate in God's mission. And we're called not to do that in our own strength and not for our own glory, but we're called to do that in humility.
Micah doesn't just say walk with your God. He says walk humbly with your God. Now, if we're going to walk humbly, we need to keep guard and a check on the way we are as well as what we do. So here's, here's the thing. The modern world doesn't really get humility. The modern world doesn't really understand humility. We live in a society that doesn't really understand the real meaning of humility. In fact, I'd actually go as far as to say the modern world doesn't just misunderstand humility. It looks down on the humble. It opposes the humble. It oppresses the humble. It doesn't like humility. It rejects humility as a virtue, preferring instead to elevate the proud. See, the modern world looks for the loudest voice in the room, the biggest noise. And we all too often fall into the trap of assuming that those are the people we should be following. Those are the people we should be like. The people whose voice is loudest, whose mission is biggest, whose platform is widest. But that's not what God tells us. That's not what God tells us to be like. He tells us this. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be completely humble. Completely. Not a little bit. Don't just do the bare minimum amount of humility. Be completely humble. He tells us this. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In fact, Proverbs, I, I could have put about half an hour's worth just of Proverbs up here about being humble. Proverbs is positively bursting with admonishments not to be proud and encouragements to be humble. God himself establishes humility as a prerequisite to his blessing. If my people who are called by my name, he writes uh, in 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And the first step is not to pray. And the first step is not to seek God's face. And the first step is not to repent. It's actually to be humble. If my people are humble and then they do all these things. And I would argue you can't do those things. You can't pray. You can't seek God's face. You can't turn from sin unless you are humble. But you have to be humble first. Sometimes we get humility wrong, though. If I, was to, if I were to ask you now to define humility, what would you say? What would you think? What would be your definition of humility? The world defines humility as some kind of weak, insipid niceness. And nice is my least favorite word. It's my, it's my least favorite word in the world. In common with every English teacher who has ever existed in history, nice is my least favorite. Nice doesn't mean anything. Well, that's nice. I tell you what, if you really want to cause me stress and anguish and upset me and have me really, really in my own head all weekend, what you want to do is come up to me after a service and say, nice sermon, Simon. That was a nice sermon. What a nice word you've given. I don't want to give you a nice word. I don't want to give you a nice word. I want to give you a word that challenges you. God wants us not to be nice, but to be humble and to be his, and to be holy, See, the world thinks that nice, uh, sorry, the world thinks humility is niceness, it's weakness that leaves you open to being trodden on or abused. And that's just not true. 
And maybe it's because society prizes arrogance and boastfulness that we go too far the other way. Sometimes to be humble, we deny our gifts. We deny what God has gifted us with. We deny what God has done through us. That's not humility. Sometimes we misunderstand humility and let others dictate our relationship with God. Oh, I can't possibly. Here's the older, wiser, more experienced Christian telling me that I need to do X, Y, Z more. I can't possibly argue with them. Surely they know about my relationship with God better than I do. That's not humility. In an attempt to be humble, we let others determine and define us, and we never step into the relationship that God calls us to. And at its worst, and it's worse, our misunderstanding of humility puts us into a position where others abuse us. Our desire to live the way Christ lives, to be completely humble, means that we think we have to tolerate being demeaned. We don't. It means we think we have to tolerate emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual abuse. We don't. We avoid dealing with these situations. We avoid confronting them. We avoid challenging them. And churches have gotten so good at avoiding challenging these things because we've bought into the false belief that to serve others, to be humble, is to never challenge legitimately abusive behaviors. We come so caught up in our desire to appear humble that we think it's more faithful to let other people beat us up, shout us down, walk all over us, lie about us, gossip us, demean us and defile us. Friends, that's not humility. That's martyrdom. That's not humility. That's martyrdom. So if you are in a position, and if you are in this position and you need prayer, you come and seek somebody out and let us pray with you about this. But if you are in a position where somebody is doing those things to you and you think that your response of being humble is to let them keep on doing it, you're wrong. Sorry, but you're wrong. That's not humility. That's letting someone abuse you. And God is not about abuse. Because humility is simply this. Biblical humility means believing what God says about you over anyone else's opinion, including your own. True humility means you believe what God says about you over everybody else's opinion, including your own. Believe the truths that God speaks about you. Believe them to be true. Don't believe what others speak about you. And don't believe what you at your worst speak about you. And certainly do not believe what the enemy says about you. Because the enemy will whisper into your ear. And the enemy will say, well, that's not very humble, is it? The enemy will say, oh, you're being a bit arrogant and boastful, aren't you? And the enemy will chip away at that. But God does not say that. God does not say that about you. It means we have to hold in tension the fact that we are sinners held in the hands of a loving God with the fact that we're precious and beloved in his sight. It means we have to hold together the truth that we don't deserve or earn grace or mercy, but we get it because of God's love. It means we hold on to the truth that we are all, each of us created in God's image, and so deserving of dignity while still knowing we've got a long way to go before we become everything that God wants us to be. If we're humble, it means we embrace who we are in Christ. It means we know we're not holy, but we long to be holy. We look to Christ, and in Christ we see the perfect example of humility, because Christ's life was the perfect example. He knew who he was completely, and he never saw himself as less or more than that. And Christ wasn't weak. 
And Christ didn't let people beat him up or abuse him. And Christ didn't have a false piety. If we want to know what true humbleness is, true humility, we look to Jesus and we live in that way. Paul puts it this way, by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. See yourself the way God sees you. Don't listen to the other narratives, especially your own. So how do we keep ourselves in this position of humility? Well, we do the third thing. We have godly faith. If we are to walk humbly with our God, it means we walk, we're active, we're humble, and we're doing it with God. It seems really simple. It seems really obvious. But how many of us at times find ourselves walking not in God's way, not in God's strength, not in God's direction, but our own? We have to have a faith that is based around the absolute understanding of who God is. Because it's only when we know who we are walking with that we can walk humbly. We thought a lot recently throughout this year, in fact, throughout our series in Nehemiah and our series on the gifts about what it means to get a right understanding of our relationship with God, how it's very easy to construct false gods, false idols of things, of people, of gifts, even of ourselves, but of how it's of God and God alone whom we should be worshipping. Charles Spurgeon preached on this. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I don't think I've put it up. Oh, I have. So I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It says this, to have a real God is the backbone of character and to keep company with him day by day is the right arm of godliness. Those who walk humbly with God are moved to action, nerved with courage, fired with zeal, elevated with devotion and purified in life by the presence of God. Oh, are those not the things we want? Do we not want to be moved to action, nerved with courage, fired with zeal and elevated with devotion and purified by the presence of God? Spurgeon goes on and he says that if we're walking with God, that's the sign of spiritual health. If we are humbly walking with God, that's, that's the mark. That's what we're looking for. It's how we know we're on the right track. It's how we know we're doing the right things. When we understand who God is, not on our terms, then we can find the assurance we're walking humbly. So let me ask you, has God ever contradicted you? Has God ever confused you? Has God ever upset you or caused you to question or challenge the way you are living? Because if he hasn't, you may want to go back to scripture and see what he's revealing about himself. The God we meet in scripture is not some tame, pink, fluffy God that we put away in our pockets and pull out from time to time. He's not a God shaped and limited by our constraints. He's not a God made in our image. He's not a God who is a little bit better, a little bit bigger, a little bit cleverer, a little wiser, a little kinder than us. He's an almighty God, awesome in power and unrestrained in capacity. He's a God who is rich in mercy and full of grace. He's the God who flung the stars, every single star into creation, into the skies in a moment, but still counts the hairs on our heads, still knows our names, watches over our waking and our sleeping, our coming and our going. He is a God who is majestic and mighty and powerful, but close and near and intimate with us. This is the God who's revealed in Scripture, and this is the God we need to be walking humbly with. What does the Lord require of you? To walk humbly with him, to walk humbly with your God. Not to sit passively and let faith happen around you or be done for you or to you, 
but to actively get up and walk the walk. To have that right view of ourselves and to keep on walking. To keep on walking when there are challenges and when there are obstacles and when it is hard and when it makes us have to reevaluate ourselves. Keep on walking humbly with your God. So I want to leave you this morning with a challenge, and it's a big one, and it's one that you're going to think is perhaps counterintuitive. Each and every person gathered here this morning, each and every person watching at home, each and every person listening, stop coming to church. Each and every one of you, stop coming to church and start being the church. Stop coming to church and start being the church. Don't just turn up on a Sunday morning or at your discipleship group or at your prayer meeting and think that's enough. Start being the church of Christ. Live it out. Walk the walk. Don't just talk the talk. Become active. Embrace the call of Christ. Accept the invitation and take on your role to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Lord Father, it's difficult sometimes to walk your ways. Oh, we know it's difficult, Lord. We know it's difficult to walk your ways. You call us to step out of comfort. You call us to step out of safety. You call us to step out of ourselves and embark upon a journey that we just aren't equipped for. But still you call us to walk. And we come, Lord, before you in all humility, seeking your strength and your wisdom and your guidance and your power and your presence and all of your good blessings to help us walk humbly with you. Lord, we don't want to be passive. We don't want to be lukewarm. We don't want to be Laodicean. Lord, we want to be active. We want to be the people who are living out the call to follow you. So fill us, Lord, with your spirit. Fill us with your strength and your might. Fill us with all good things and all knowledge of you that we can walk humbly with you. And Lord, as we prepare ourselves and as we go out from this place this morning, let us not forget. Let us not forget. Let us not step outside and immediately take off the Christian clothes and put on the worldly clothes. But let us live the way you have called us to live. Let us be your people. What do you require of us, Lord? You require us to walk humbly with you. And so each of us prays in the name of your son, Jesus, for his sake and by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this morning we would grasp that truth. Take it. Let it penetrate and sink deep into us. And that we would stop coming to church and start being your church. Amen. Thanks for joining us on the Holton Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to keep in touch with you, so do reach out to us. You'll be able to find us at our website. That's www.holtonbaptists.org.uk. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram if you search for at Holton Baptists. And we hope that you will join us again next time as we share the word of God and the love of Jesus Christ with you. God bless.